This is the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's up, Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast. We've got our buddy Jeff Boyle with Ventry Tech down from Calgary, right? Yes. Awesome. What, are you, what are you doing in town? Uh, came down for San Diego GPA Midstream Conference and uh, spent three days there and now over in Oh, Houston. so that was, that was in San Diego. That's not even here. That was uh, San Antonio. Sorry. Oh, San Antonio. Yeah. Did okay. I say San Antonio? Yeah, you said San Diego. San Diego. I was like, damn, we're that out San We were just talking about San Diego. We're at the Diego. wrong one, I guess. Yeah. Uh, conferences. No, no, no. I need to go to the San Diego. I'm ones. just <laughs> popping over that quick. Yeah. Different no, no, no. San Antonio GPA Midstream <laughs> Conference. And uh, so spent three days there with, uh, it was pretty impressive, 1,600 uh, attendees. Awesome. Uh, a lot of owner operators, a lot of supply chain. So uh, everyone in there checking out new technologies, keeping each other uh, up to speed on new regulations and all that good stuff. What's awesome. gas up to? Like five, six bucks? What's that? What's gas up to? Uh, yesterday it touched $6.20. I think it settled under like five, $5.90. But yeah, it's around six bucks. Yeah. So it's getting up there. <laughs> well, and there was, there was a lot of conversations also about how the industry is going to tackle like carbon capture pipelines and uh, renewable Oh, Did you see this thing with the Sierra Club? It just reminds me. It pisses me off. But Sierra Club is uh, fighting back. They're they're building uh, some carbon sequestration pipelines up in uh, Nebraska, and Sierra Club's fighting them on it, saying that uh, CO two capture is just a way for oil and gas companies to greenwash the industry. And I'm like, this isn't even. It's not even an oil and gas company doing it. It's a carbon sequestration company that's building pipelines. I was like, they just hate pipelines, regardless. They just just try just, to stop it no matter hate what. Pipelines, no matter. It could be pipe and water and i mean I've, like, i'm in i'm in canada so i get to feel that quite yeah a bit. you feel it for yeah, sure there's there's not a lot of pipelines getting built up yeah in canada right tell now. me what's the name of the company mean because i've never asked this question once on the podcast like what's the name mean but i was just curious because there's a tool that you use in oil and gas called a venturi basket and so y'all's company name reminds me of venturi i was just curious what the company name okay was. okay it it could be um that could be based off of uh, same wording and whatnot. So the name came along before I joined. Um, but as I was looking back and asking everyone, like, where did this come from? What What's going on? I couldn't get a straight answer. So then I started looking up and uh, realized that uh, it, it's based, well, it should be based off of uh, a phrase of truth prevails. Okay. So there there is like a, a victory. Uh, Victritus, uh, I can't remember the other, the other word, okay. but it was like, Ventry looks like those two words brought together. And I was like, I think <laughs> this is it, but no, I, I wish there was a cool story behind that, but they don't know what, uh, yeah, what or how I was just like, um, they picked it. I was like, it looks kind of similar and like a Venturi basket essentially operates kind of like this vacuum, like you run it down to uh, suck junk out of a well. And so it's kind of got this vacuum effect. So I was like, Maybe there's like some like etymology where it's like, you know, venture means something. And like you guys had played off that name too. I, I don't even know yeah. what y'all do. I don't know what your tech is or what you guys even do. So, well, to that point, it's. Well, why don't you tell us? That's yeah. a good, that's a yeah. good segue. So we're, what do we're, a data, do? we're a data preparation company, but we're focused in on the data integrity and the preservation of all of the original um, sources of the data. So, um, like in your bullpen, you've got a lot of great companies that are focused on cleansing the data, normalizing it, bringing it all together. Right. 
So when it comes to asset data um, and the DNA of each of these pipe flanges fittings, downhole or midstream or upstream, um, you need to have traceability, which I know you guys have talked to a lot of people around the traceability, but you also need to make sure that the supply chain is passing all of this data over and that you don't actually smash the data together and consolidate it and eliminate anomalies. Like a lot of traditional data preparation off the shelf will be like, oh, there's some anomalies here. That doesn't make my graph and my chart pretty, so let's delete those. Yeah, well, remove that Well, in asset thing. data, yeah. those anomalies could be flanges that don't meet their engineering specifications that failed um, their non-destructive testing. So you're talking about if equipment fails, I mean, you have catastrophic failure where there's life or environmental damage. So you can't just say, Hey, we'll remove these outliers to polish up our graph and make it look good because that piece of equipment got passed through and it could result in a failure. Yeah. Every, every anomaly essentially has to be stack ranked with an issue and flagged and allow the professionals to dig in and say, is this bad data capture? Is this, uh, a discrepancy between the physical asset and its digital representation, or is this actually a catastrophic issue that um, could create additional risk down down the line, right? So yeah. there is use cases and unfortunate examples of the wrong material being installed in the wrong place, and in those incorrect conditions, it costs lives. So on the data management, the data preparation side, I think you can say that, and it means 20 different things yes. to 20 different people, right? So kind of diving into that, is it, you guys are, I'm trying to think of like, how, do, how do I ask this question? What is like the main problem that you're solving? And then I think that'll help understand exactly which angle that you're taking on the data preparation side. Yeah, the main, the main problem is that there is a lot of capture tools out there. Okay. And there's a ton of data presentation tools yep. and data integration methods and, and strategies there's not a lot of data integrity tools out there that are taking all the disparate sources and then translating it into a single ledger. We're a centralized ledger, not a decentralized, but uh, we can't get into that debate. We don't have enough time. <laughs> I'd love to talk um, about that. But, uh, so we've got our centralized ledger and then we're cross verifying. So we're saying, hey, to build a pipeline, you've got at least 10 different suppliers that are interacting with that material data. Do they all actually line up? Do they all agree it's the same thing? Do they all agree that this specific pipe came from that specific coil and all of the specs for engineering and procurement and, and everything else actually lines up? So our focus is, can you trust the data? Because for the most part, the industry kind of treats the data as secondary and they focus on the physical asset in front of them, which is right. They're the inspectors in the field and at the manufacturing facilities they have to focus on that physical asset in front of them and check all of its parameters. However, if you're looking at these assets 10, 15, 50 years from now, the only source of truth you have is the data. So we're trying to put that lens on like, okay, 10 years from now, would we be able to tell the difference between this flange and this fitting? Mm -hmm. Would we be able to tell where this was made and who made it? And if there is a major recall, would we actually be able to trace back to that coil, that slab that, that created. So if you have four different pieces of data that are conflicting, mm -hmm. right. As opposed to just assuming one is right, you guys are going through and verifying which one exactly is right. We've, we throw the flag on and then the professionals, like the, the engineers dive in and do the forensic audit. Okay. So the software is very much about 
um, translating all the data mm-hmm. into a single format because everyone's got their favorite form. They've got their favorite data capture tools. Um, no one will agree on even a format of a spreadsheet. Um, and so they're each going to use their own systems, but then you can translate it into one language and then you can actually cross check it. And then, like I said, the issues go back into the suppliers, their QAQC teams, the owner operators, QAQC teams, and they then settle and say, okay, this was, uh, an anomaly in the data. This was transcription errors or nope, that pipe wasn't never supposed to come to our job site. That's someone else's pipe. That's the wrong spec for this project. So what's the end result after? So you're able to identify certain anomalies. What do they do with it now? Is it, I mean, are you guys kind of going into the data lake, data warehousing space, or are you making changes to the data at the source? Do you have a record or a ledger of the changes that took place? Like what's the, like, what is the end result around the execution? Yeah. So great question. The platform has a full change log ledger. Okay. So as the suppliers are making their changes and updates and, and corrections, it's tracking who did what. And that's very important for liability and future potential claims and so forth. So we never change anyone's data. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's critical for this form of data preparation. Um, so you send the issue back to them, they correct it, and then you you track all of that. Um, for the data lake standpoint, what we're noticing is the owner operators are all working with their own partners. They're building their own data lakes, yeah. right? But they're all heavily influenced by a supply chain that is feeding them additional data. So while they're building their own in-house data lakes with their own partners, we're saying, okay, well, we've got a really flexible, cost-effective method to make sure that the streams coming from your supply chain don't taint that beautiful data lake that you're trying to build. So the big teams that are going after the API integration platforms, taking all of those in-house systems and trying to create a single source of truth for them, we're focused on making sure the single source of truth coming out of the supply chain doesn't mess all the hard work that they're doing inside. Mm, mm, that makes sense. I love that you brought up the point of being centralized and not decentralized because I was actually just thinking about this a couple of days ago because everyone talks about the future being decentralized, but coming over to like oil and gas is like, we just need to centralize and get data in one, in one spot that can be trusted. And so I think that one, I think that technology always ebbs and flows and, you know, you have different points in time where, Hey, maybe it makes sense to be decentralized or maybe makes sense to have a centralized database. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm a big, Bitcoin and blockchain fanboy. So, you know, I talk about decentralization all of the time, but there's yeah. definitely like cases where it's like, hey, just need to get all the data centralized and have a source of truth that's uh that can be verified and just reliable. Yeah. At the end of the day. Well, there's so much debate over one engineering firm's system being better than the other engineering firm. And the owner operators in this situation with asset data, they are the central owner of that data. They're responsible to the public, to the regulators, to everyone for making sure what they designed and engineered was built and was maintained. So a centralized system for them works really well. Also, like I, I was listening in on, on a lot of your previous podcasts and um, your recent guests, I mean, it was impressive how many of the objections to decentralize that they'd hit on, right? Like the, the energy consumption, uh, the security, all that different stuff. But when we were um, hiring um, DLT developers and looking at should we swap over to uh, a DLT format, we had like, this is federally regulated pipelines. So we had individuals in the Securities Commission saying, 
okay, you're going to take federally regulated data and you're going to then stand up a private node in a foreign country that it could be a state-owned company. So that was, I mean, that was a while back, but at that time it was just a, a dead stop for them. And we had current customers. We've, um, we're bootstrap. We've been running this off of our own revenue for, for nine years. So we couldn't, we couldn't go against our current customers and all of a sudden jeopardize the security no. for their data. Yeah. I do believe that there's huge strides on that side and that's not yeah. really the debate anymore. It's, it's more so for us, we were able to take that change log over and, and utilize the ledger and give the transparency. The only thing we weren't able to do is yes, there is one owner of that data, but in this yeah. case, the owner operator does own that data. Yeah, for sure. Um, and just speaking about pipelines, did you see, <laughs> this is like so far on the field, I'm going to throw this at you. Did you see that article, um, that the New Yorker put out about climate terrorists? Did y'all see this? No, I, I saw it. Oh, I've been all hyped up on it all week. So I gotta, like, I gotta <laughs> talk about it now that we're talking about pipelines, but the New Yorker put out this, uh, article talking about, you know, um, well, first off it was like broken down into a couple pieces and there was a podcast in there and the podcast was titled how to blow up a pipeline and <laughs> yeah wow yeah, your reaction yeah wow like, hey maybe you shouldn't like publish that and anyways it was uh they were highlighting this uh climate activists and they were encouraging people like hey we have to take violence now to uh to save the world and we can no longer just out of the new yorker out of all magazines yeah that's what's crazy about that? it is because like the New Yorkers fonts that they use are all yeah. like, they're like these fancy scribes and it looks all nice. It's like how to blow up a pipeline. I'm like, pretty sure like if you did that for any other, like how to blow up an airplane, like you'd be on a list pretty quick. I feel like that's like the equivalent of like GQ taking a hard stance against pipelines. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's just, that's just too much. I mean, so, I mean, you bring up a point that I actually focus on personally, like I'm a founding member of Energy Ecosystem Initiative. And it's based around trying to create curriculum-based videos and lesson plans for high school students mm. to just understand that it's an energy mix mm -hmm. and that there is no polar um, right or wrong and that like the transition can go many different ways. But right now it's an energy mix. Yeah. And how can they complement each other and support each other? Because, I mean, right now in Alberta, we've got... Uh, a brand new polypropylene plant that just went online. It's producing um, nat or taking natural gas and producing these plastic pellets that are some of the most sustainable plastic out there. And lo and behold, there is certain U.S. Uh, manufacturers of certain products that say they're going to end oil and gas that want that plastic for their vehicles. Yeah, and want that for their products. Yeah. So they're, they're like, there's just no, there's no canceling one for the other yeah well that's what i've started saying you know demand for energy as a whole not just hydrocarbons as a whole continues to grow and so you can add on capacity of renewables which is great but you have an energy mix like you said so i tell everyone it's an energy addition not an energy transition like we're just adding different different power sources to the mix right yeah. now and the problem has always been that the industry takes a factual stance against an emotional stance so it's just, it's so hard to, to have any kind of healthy debate. Healthy debate seems to be gone now. 
Like you can't have a yeah. healthy. I'm about to debate drop a podcast how to blow up wind turbines. <laughs> <laughs> so on, on our initial video, like it's all about we try to throw out three pros and cons for each, right? Yeah. And we're just trying to encourage the students to go out and do their own research. Yeah. But to your point, they can really come good. up on that article and they can they can get skewed so quickly depending on what they. That's what actually they really interesting to me. Kind of the the education. Well, I mean, for digital wall cutters, it's a big mission for us to educate the public on energy as a whole you know uh we're big fans of everything energy as long as you know it, it makes sense but every energy source has pros and cons right like yeah every every single one does and i think that's interesting to uh educate the kids because i have kids and you know my oldest is 10 years old now and even with his old pops it's comes from oil and gas like he's like oil and gas is bad renewables are the future and you have to like really sit down and like educate them and teach them about energy. And if you're not proactive in doing that, yeah, they get the they get the opposite side because a lot of people are talking about the opposite side. And then yeah, you start getting as it's just weird. Like we've got this like jihad on <laughs> energy assets now. Like it's so politicized that you have like climate like people wanting to blow up pipelines. But you know how to um, you know in the midstream space like. How do you guys think about, because I mean, it, it's a thing now. It's just NIMBYs are everywhere and it wasn't, didn't just end with Keystone XL mm -hmm. pipeline. Like it's going to be every pipeline now. So how is that, um, you know, how does that affect y'all's business? And just uh, kind of like going into the midstream community as a whole, you know, you see that these pipelines, I just want to guess carbon sequestration now, like I yeah. said, like, you know, does that, how, how does the community think about that this episode is brought to you by our friends over at liquid frameworks liquid frameworks has become the standard in field operations management software over the past decade with their field effects platform with field effects enps and ofs companies can transform how they manage and control field operations while eliminating the mountains of paperwork that comes along with it field effects makes field operations easy and efficient by streamlining communication between the accounting department field operations and the entire back office they're trusted by some of the most respected teams in the industry such as stallion oil field services superior energy services rpc basic energy service Services, key energy services, Liberty Oil Field Services, and anybody else who has services in their name is pretty much a customer. So if you've been thinking about ditching paper on Excel, modernizing your field operations and making your guys' lives easier, reach out to the team over there. You can check them out at liquidframeworks.com. They're also going to be the headlining sponsor and presenting at Energy Tech Night Houston on October 27th, 2021. So if you're listening real time, you can come and check them out. They're going to be demoing the software live as well. The whole team will be there if you want to chat with them. Like I said, you can go to liquidframeworks.com. We'll also leave a link in the show notes i mean that's that's a big question but especially coming from canada like, so from from our perspective we built the platform asset agnostic yeah so we've got the the current asset like it's asset centric it's built on NoSQL, so it's very flexible and that's how we're able yeah. to translate all these different relational databases into a common ledger for us and we made it asset agnostic so that we could stand up the models at at will well, that's a good um, point so being so for you guys developer like, focused yeah does the software even know if you're talking about a pipeline or if you're talking about a different energy asset? No, the professional services team bring in the context and they're the ones that help make sure the algorithms and the different cross checks actually know what what's supposed to be going on. So gotcha. um, they're the ones leading edge. I mean, I wish we could say we've got machine learning and, and artificial intelligence doing it. No, dude. I we, love don't have, we don't have access to that much data yet, but 
we've got some very smart data analysts. That- First off, let me give you some praise for saying that. I can't tell you how many companies say that they have machine learning and artificial intelligence, and it's a group of analysts in the back <laughs> closet true. around the table. I can't. Yeah. So many companies when they've got do the that, cloud so. and they've got a little box of experts, and they're just <laughs> pointing the experts towards the cloud. That's context. That's that's yep. the group that is bringing in yep. probably most algorithms. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's no, cool to say MLAI. Yeah. And- no, like I, I got major <laughs> respect for that. Like just say, hey, we got a great team of data analysts that are giving context to the data. We've been very fortunate in Canada, so we we might be the only startup that was on every major pipeline um, project there for a while. Now, that's not saying oh, nice. much, because there's not a lot of major pipeline <laughs> projects in Canada. There's only but, one, guy. Hey, so one, one be the biggest, but biggest, at one point, there was the four major pipelines in Canada, and we were on all four. So we're just like, okay, we're doing something right. And they allowed us to de-risk the solution so that we could make it scalable and, and affordable for like a 13-joint section replacement. Yeah. And then one of those customers then said, hey, we've got five compressor stations. Can you prove it out on that? So we got really lucky with some visionaries, some early adopters yeah. that allowed us to de-risk it all and, and show like a great example of just value right now um, for the industry that is still building. Um, and there's still tons of pipelines coming. It's just no one talks about them anymore because then they get on the radar. Yeah. Um, but there's it's it's actually getting pretty exciting. There's a lot of new projects being announced, not just renewable diesel and carbon capture, but um, new gas lines. There's LNG facilities needing to be fed. Um, so as those keep popping up, then they need new infrastructure to feed mm-hmm. them. There's a ton of aging historical infrastructure that needs to be properly replaced. Yeah. and can't be just turned off. Otherwise... Um, everyone experiences what the winter storm gave everyone a taste of for a little bit. So yeah. you can't just turn it off. You can't just, yeah. <laughs> just can't instantly switch, replace so we don't it. Need it. So, we don't need it anymore. Um, from a standpoint of just value and, and what's coming, um, usable, trustworthy data has allowed one of our projects to save and eliminate over 3,000 miles of, of material movement. So for them, they're now adapting and saying, well, okay, this is now an ESG story. We can, we can apply this to the ESG initiative. This is a health and safety story. We're taking usable data, and it's not just catching stuff early so that it doesn't impact uh, workflow at construction or at commissioning timeline. It's also usable data is allowing us to truly eliminate um, in areas where the public and and the regulators have said, hey, there's, there's room for improvement. So yeah. um, it's, it's an interesting fact. The market is, um, I'd say 40% of the market is embracing data capture. So they've got iPads out there. They've got forms of some sort. And and they're going after eliminating the clipboard and, and uh, the paper. There's 50% that's still pretty traditional in their turnover packages and banker boxes. And um, they're just waiting to see what what path they tackle. Yeah. The last 10% are where we target right now in that they've been capturing data long enough that now they're like, okay, just capturing it doesn't give us um, accuracy. We need to actually cross-verify and check that it's a game of telephone, right? So if, if all 10 sources give you your information in a different format and a locked PDF and a scanned PDF and whatnot, mm-hmm. it's borderline impossible for those QA individuals to catch everything mm-hmm. and to actually see, does everyone agree? But if you get it translated into one language, now you can be like, okay, all 10 agree. 
let it let it pass. You still need the professional to dive into that MTR, that birth certificate, and check check the certain levels. But they can now check that one and then see like the niobium level and the carbon equivalency of all of their assets on a scatter plot chart in a BI tool. So they can they can feed their their data presentation tools that they they like and that they are adopting yeah. with trustworthy data. That's awesome. You made a comment that the company's bootstrapped uh, within cash flow for nine years. Yes. Uh, when did you When did you join on? I'm five years now. Five years in. What was your background? Uh, so I spent a decade staffing up oil and gas projects. Okay. So cool. I worked with like project managers to build out their team, construction yeah. managers, and so forth. Yeah. So I knew, um, I mean, it was a technology enabled service. It leveraged a lot of software, um, to keep track of all the applicants and actually maintain a, a skill base that wasn't just throwing up a posting and, and throwing whoever came into the job. Yeah. But, um, I really enjoyed and was super curious about like how these fractionation plants were getting built, how like froth treatment plants were, were getting created, the major pipelines and, and I understood the different silos within the organizations of why it was so hard to get QA and doc control and projects and commissioning all on the same page because they were literally working in their own silos. So, of course, their data was going to be in silos. Yeah. And then they send it out. They have it. In, it's, it's so frustrating, though. Still, they have everything in such usable data formats at engineering. And the second they send it out to supply chain, they send it out in PDFs. They take it from structured data to unstructured data yeah. <laughs> to go out to the supply chain, right? To have everyone bid on it and work on it. And it's just just watching that whole path. I was like, okay, I get this. And at the time when I joined, we were very focused on traceability. So um, like my first mission of taking over marketing was to not be known as the barcode company anymore. Because on all these major pipelines, we had a QR code with 1D barcode with alphanumeric behind it so secondary identifiers they're great but you and i can go to the grocery store right now and if we scan in a barcode and it's got bad data behind it we're not paying the price we're supposed to be paying and we also might be paying for something and buying something that we shouldn't be buying because it should have been recalled because the yeah. data behind it's incorrect so same with secondary identifiers like traceability there's the physical traceability aspect which is a tool that's needed but the data behind that secondary identifier or just associated to that stencil or stamp, that's where the real value is. So about five years ago, we stopped marketing as a material traceability company and really focused in on the fact that to give the industry material traceability, what we we're doing is auditing the data for its integrity, its trustworthiness, and its traceability. So mm -hmm. you got to do a lot more to just get to traceability and, and there's just so much more benefit and, and value uh, outside of just that one, that one niche. Yeah. Um, you know, nine years into the company's progress, you said, you, know, you kind of gave us a breakdown on the market, you know, 40%, 50%, and then y'all are targeting that 10% that's been capturing data. But now I was looking at how, essentially how you keep that uh, data cross-reference and accurate. Um, how is you know how does the market look like moving forward i mean are a lot of pipeline companies starting are they starting to get over that hump you know that 50 percent and say like oh hey we should really start being looking at this i mean you think just like data capture saying like hey we should you know get off paper and clipboard and at least just start capturing data you think that a lot of companies would already be at that point but it sounds like most of the industry is not 
do you see them? Are they starting to kind of turn that corner and get over that hump? Conversations are getting a lot more exciting recently. Um, before we would try to like that visual that you were talking about where we've got the funnel, then we've got the filters and then we feed into the other systems. Um, before you throw that up there and people would be like, well, I think we're just tackling the first phase data capture right now. And, and then we've got power BI over here. So I, I think we're good. And we're like, okay, but this whole filter section, like you, yes, you have your own engine, but how much better can your engine run when you have a fuel filter? Mm-hmm. Like trying to just give them some kind of analogy of like, hey, there's <laughs> there's so much value here, but not having the use cases. Yeah. So the big thing has been just building up the use cases, getting our customers to share more with us. Um, we had one of our partners, TC Energy, come out with an article talking about the accessibility value of it all, right? So very hard to get the industry to want to build a case study to talk about how many errors and issues are in the data. Much easier for us to get someone to talk about the accessibility of their data. So they came out with great quotes like things that used to take us three months to chase down. Now we have at our fingertips. And and so we're like, okay, maybe we open with accessibility, get our foot in the door with accessibility. And then that's our chance to show them the accuracy side, the trustworthy side. Yeah. Um, of of actually doing the QAQC. On I mean, the accessibility points a big point too, right? Like you want to enable companies and employ those companies to be able to do more high impact work and have quick accessibility to data instead yeah. of having to go dig for it, right? So I mean, that's a good value proposition. Yeah, isn't accessibility so, essentially productivity? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you you talk to whether it's on the owner side or it's on the supplier side. You talk to the right person and all of a sudden you uncover that they're spending 40, 50% of their week chasing stuff. Yeah. And especially in these huge relational databases, it's, it's kind of like you guys were talking about like the transition of drilling, right? Relational databases is like old school drilling. You just dive in and you go deep, deep, deep into that folder structure and you hope where you land is where you want to be. If not, (laughs) you pull all the way back and then you go in again and it's just peck and search in in so many cases. Now, enterprise content management tools are coming out with a lot of tagging, labeling, which is really helpful. Um, We, we adopted that too, because it's, it's super uh, accessible. Um, But uh, there's just, there's just a way of how to get it to the market. So what I was saying with that visual is now in most recent meetings, especially since I've been able to come back down to the States, um, we've got um, owner operators saying, we want to talk about the data integrity section. Let's, let's talk about that. So we are seeing the market. They've, they've done enough data capture. They've tried out a couple tools and they've realized that you can have the best, most UI friendly form in the market whatsoever, but, because you have to depend on nine to 10 other suppliers um, with their versions of the truth and stuff like that. You need something to um, cross-verify it and and bring it all into one page. So all these asset integrity systems, the ERPs, um, they all, and the AI tools and stuff like that, they all have one major commonality. They all seek usable data. So like another visual we have, which we don't have the website, is just Maslow's hierarchy, right? And we, at the top, you've got the digital twins and the, um, the AI tools and stuff like that. And you're like, those are amazing. But below that is usable data. And most people just aren't paying enough attention to how much data preparation and, and data integrity and, and preservation needs to be done to all of that to make that usable data to feed into those other solutions. Yeah, so, I mean, that's a, that's a horse that 
we've definitely we've we've been on it on the show of, mm-hmm. hey ai machine learning it's great but you gotta have good data underlying or being fed into that you have to have good inputs before yeah. you can really unlock the value well we've got a lot of friends in in other startups that like are focused in on on digital twins and luckily because we've been able to talk to them they're going ahead with having two layers in their digital twins, right? All these CAD models that only show you what's expected. I mean, that's not really giving you any insight. Every CAD model out there needs to have what's expected and what's the actual and be able to show both those, right? So we've got partners that they take the CAD model and overlay the LIDAR scan or the photogrammetry scan and show expected versus actual from a physical standpoint. Well, we've now been able to start testing out, feeding into their system where they have the material data for expected. And then from Ventry, we can feed in the actual. So there's there's a lot of room to grow there. And, and it's interesting to see that some of these flashier, prettier looking solutions are actually the solutions that point out to the owner operators that they need the filter. Yeah. So, you know, for this, this conversation is interesting to Jake and I because talked about data management for since day one yeah since day one um on this show most of it's always been upstream so it's interesting to hear about you know how midstream deals with it and the solutions that are out there to uh, handle it so if someone's listening to the show and they're interested in uh, finding out more information about you guys what's your website where can they find you at yeah so it's ventry tech so v-i-n-t-r-i-t-e-c-h.com all right. Uh, so they can jump on there. There's a bunch of different uh, avenues that they can uh, pass over their information. They can also reach me, Jeff Boyle, on LinkedIn. Cool. Um, love having conversations. Love seeing how we can collaborate with other solutions too because there's a lot of innovation out there that wants good, clean, usable data fed into it. So yeah, uh, lots of opportunity there. Yeah, really cool stuff, man. I appreciate you coming on the show and teaching us about it. Thank you for having me. Yeah, really appreciate absolutely. It. All right, guys, uh, take two seconds. Go sign up for the BDE newsletter. Also, check out the new BDE show live at 1030 a.m. every Tuesday. Colin and Chuck are kind of going through all the news of the week. Oil and gas, broader energy, lots of dank memes, a couple different skits, the normal Chuck Yates stuff. So check it out. We'll catch you guys in the next episode.